0: Coming up on Tech Nation, sometimes it takes 20 years to be an overnight success. Dr. Jonathan Javitt from NeuroRx Pharma tells us about a scientific discovery which lingered for nearly two decades some 70 boxes in deep storage. It's now being tested as a treatment for COVID-19. Then Rick Carrion, the CEO of Impedimed, tells us about a technology developed in the 1990s for research purposes. Today, it's approved for the early detection of lymphedema following breast cancer. An early intervention is everything. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2010, I spoke with former WIRED editor-in-chief Kevin Kelly. He talks about what technology wants. In his opening chapter, Kevin Kelly traces the origins of the word technology. I asked him to start there.
2: Technology is actually a recent word that was first used in English around 1829 and it was um, invented, so to speak, by a professor who was bringing together a bunch of applied art courses, your mining, your chemistry, your architecture. And he kind of concluded that, oh, my gosh, this is really one subject, and that subject is, I'll call it, technology. And um, that word was sort of used a little bit as time went on, but actually I did an analysis of all the State of the Union speeches from the last 200 years, and the the word technology didn't even occur uh, very often in those speeches until the 50s. And so it's a word that we have only recently applied to something that is actually very old.
0: Well, the 20th century really was sort of the hubris of man and technology. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking about Post-World War II, just about the 50s, we're talking about an electrical grid that went all over the United States. We're talking about, in in the early part of the century, suddenly we were built, building huge hydraulic dams nobody had ever done before, interstate commerce systems, you name it. I mean, suddenly we were able to take technology, and it wasn't just progress. We were going to conquer anything
2: Mm -hmm. in nature and it was
0: that was sort of the zeitgeist of the time
2: yes it is and The cost of that was a lot of environmental damage in a sense of, um, or not even thinking about what the uh, consequences were environmentally. So we had a kind of a reaction, a discovery of of the consequences of this with Rachel Carson and others saying, oh my gosh, hey, we have to look at this. There actually is a cost. And that cost still goes on. There still is a cost to it. But I like to think of um, technology as sort of developmental in the way that there is a progression. In a regular organism where they're kind of egg and then you have infant or you know, embryo or something and it goes on to a, a childhood and a teenage. And I think in some senses that industrial age of technology was sort of a terrible twos.
3: For the <laughs> yeah. um,
2: it was very. I, I, self- I have
0: no consci- <laughs> co- consciousness, of the consequences of my behavior. Right, right, exactly. and I only want, yes, right, exactly. Get it, I get it. it.
2: Very, very <laughs> self-centered, and uh, and brutish, and some kind, and, and kind of um, dirty and grimy. And I think um, once technology reached a certain level of complexity, and we started to kind of import. Or it started to resemble, in some ways, an ecosystem or with the Internet, kind of like an immune system. And when it reached this level, I think a new facet, a new face of technology was revealed. And we began to see in it as something bigger. We began to see another face in it. We, got, we understood that it was not just sort of this inhumane, steam-powered, chemical, dirty thing. But actually, at its essence, it was a more of an informational Thing that was connected to life, and I think my book is, in some ways, kind of illuminating that connection between uh, the system that we're making right now of all these things—the World Wide Web, the communication stuff, genetic engineering—with the long three point seven billion years of life. That that really the same kinds of dynamics that run through life run through the technium and technology, and that the Technium is sort of an extension a continuation of the forces of evolution and of course the acceleration of them which is a big thing
0: you've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with former Wired editor-in-chief Kevin Kelly he talks about what technology wants his most recent book is The Inevitable understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future that's right if it's tech look for Kevin. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is TechNation. Today on TechNation, a twist of fate resurrects a scientific discovery shelled for most of two decades. Now it's being tested as a treatment for COVID-19. Then Impedimeds Rick Carrion tells us about the millions of women who suffer from lifelong lymphedema following breast cancer treatment? Impediments technology can find it early, opening up the opportunity for intervention.
4: TechNation is underwritten in part
0: by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you so much, Maura. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, one of the big surprises of the COVID pandemic is that innovative biotech companies didn't stop. And if they were working on anything that could help, they pivoted, and sometimes they just pivoted. They said, we have a lot of capability. We're going to go work on something related to testing treatment, vaccines, prevention in, in COVID. NeuroRx pivoted. What did it do?
4: Well, we, we really did. When the pandemic hit, we were in phase three with a drug for, for suicidal depression. And one of the great challenges we had is with hospitals going into lockdown mode, it was simply impossible to continue the, the phase three protocol that we were running. We couldn't take the risk of giving people an investigational drug if we didn't know that we'd be able to, to stay in touch with them, if we didn't know that we'd be able to, to lay our hands on them. And just as we were really you know, grappling with the realization that we were going to have to tell our, our clinical team to stand down, one of our investors came to us and said, you know, we have this uh, shell company in Switzerland. It sold its last asset but one of the engineers in the company has these these old files on a drug that might be useful in COVID. Would you have a look at it? Uh, And uh, sure enough, uh, a chemist named uh, Eve Segoe had put together this slide deck talking about how this uh, 50-year-old drug, vasoactive intestinal peptide, it's not even a drug, it's it's a natural hormone that's made by your body every day, could be... Uh, effective in treating COVID.
0: And vasoactive intestinal peptide, that's that's VIP.
4: That's VIP. It's, it's, it's kind of a crazy name. Uh, and it it took me a while to actually get the whole story because most of the people who knew the story are no longer of this earth. But it turns out that uh, Dr. Sami Saeed, who started his medical career in Cairo, Uh, Came to New York uh, in the the 1950s, uh, got uh, an internship in medicine at at Bellevue Hospital, where where my dad's still on the faculty, and part of NYU, where my son is doing his first year of internship, and uh, came to be a general doctor, but caught tuberculosis. And by the time he was cured of tuberculosis, he was so interested in the lung that he won a uh, fellowship to study at Johns Hopkins, which as you can imagine for you know, a new immigrant uh, back in the 1950s might've been uh, you know quite a, quite a feat. And uh, w- became a pulmonary disease specialist, became quite well recognized, and had the idea that uh, there must be something that goes on in the lungs, some, something that's let loose in the lung to cause this big drop in blood pressure that sometimes kills people who get blood clots in their lungs, something called pulmonary emboli. So he went off to the the Karolinska Institute in Sweden to find this mysterious substance and kind of got a hint of what it was, but just couldn't buy enough pounds of lung in the local slaughterhouses to isolate enough of it to really study it with the analytic techniques of 1970 which were a lot less precise than the techniques of today. So he realized that it was also being made in the intestine, uh, partly because there are these funny intestinal tumors that cause a lot of flushing and diarrhea. So he, uh, he went and bought tons of intestines and was able to isolate and purify this uh, peptide hormone.
0: I, I came thinking about Karolinska. They didn't know what they were going to get when they when they, he, he came there.
4: <laughs> well, they, di- they didn't know what they were going to get, but they have this incredible scientific legacy of one discovery after another, which is why he chose to go there to do his sabbatical. So uh, he and, and Victor Motov of the Karolinska Institute identified this peptide back in, in 1970 and yeah, He wanted to name it very important peptide because he quickly realized that it was all over the body and doing all kinds of different things. And a peptide is just a form of protein? Yeah, it's a very small kind of protein. So pep- peptides are very short proteins. And uh, so he and, and, and Victor Mutt went to publish this in Nature and they wanted to name it very important peptide because they realized it was all over the body. But the editors of Nature were a little more sober than that. So they convinced him to name it vasoactive intestinal peptide because that's where he'd identified it. But it turns out that 70% of this VIP is actually concentrated in the human lung. And it's been protecting the lung from all kinds of injuries for as long as mammals have been breathing air. And that's, that's really where the story starts.
0: In 70 boxes in Essen, Germany.
4: Well, it took a while to get to 70 boxes in Essen, Germany. So he made this discovery in, in 1970. And for 30 years, he sat in the laboratory and tested this peptide against all kinds of lung injuries, everything from smoke inhalation to inhaling stomach acid to uh, inhaling all sorts of noxious substances and showed in one experiment after another that this peptide protects the lung against all sorts of injuries. Now, he didn't know in the beginning exactly what part of the lung. And that's where our uh, new research colleague, Bob Mason at University of Colorado comes in. Because Bob's the guy who discovered that most of the lining of the lung is lined with these fairly boring type one cells that just kind of sit there and let oxygen go across. But there are these type two cells, which are rare cells in the lining of the lung that make all of the surfactant that's critical to the lung working. So people know about surfactant because everybody's met somebody or themselves had a premature infant, and they know that until you get to a certain number of weeks, you can't make enough surfactant to breathe. But people don't always understand exactly what that means. So it's pretty simple surfactant is kind of like the soap in a soap bubble. It creates enough surface tension so that the little air sacs in the lung can stay open. And without surfactant, two things happen. One is the the air sacs collapse. And the other is that the air, without surfactant protecting it, can be toxic to the lining of the lung. And the lung is lined by the same kind of cells that cover the front of your eye. And there's probably nobody listening to us who hasn't woken up with a scratchy eye because they, their eyelid was a little bit open when they were asleep or they had a, a dry eye condition and the, the, the cells on the front of the eye, on the front of the cornea dried out and they wake up with a, a pretty uncomfortable situation. Well, the same kind of cells, the same kind of, they call them epithelial cells, line the lung and uh, without surfactant protecting them, They really don't do very well if they're exposed to air. So turns out that the the COVID virus, or what we call the SARS-CoV-2 virus is the fancy word, doesn't attack most of the lung, although it causes profound respiratory failure. Respiratory failure means the lung can't let oxygen across into the blood. What the virus does is attacks these type 2 cells, and Bob Mason's the guy who discovered the type 2 cell in the first place. That that spike that everybody knows on the virus, that everybody recognizes, well, it binds to a very specific place on those type 2 cells, like a key fitting into a lock. And some people might have heard the word ACE2 receptor. Well, the virus binds to that very specific receptor on the cell, like a key fitting into a lock, and all of a sudden the cell says, well, I recognize you, you must not be harmful, come on inside. And the virus does go inside, except it is harmful. It starts to make lots of copies of itself, but most importantly, it shuts down surfactant. So the first thing that happens, and and this is a little bit heretical, uh, you know, I believe this, and there's a, a bunch of uh, pretty smart pulmonary specialists who believe this, that the first thing that's happening in COVID-19 is you shut down the lung's ability to make surfactant. And that's why people go into this low oxygen state, they call it hypoxia, where sometimes you can't even walk from your bed to the toilet without falling down on the floor. There's just no, not enough oxygen in your blood to do it. And it's it's a failure of surfactant. And you can see it on x-rays, A COVID x-ray doesn't look like pneumonia. It's not like your lungs are full of fluid. It's that these little air sacs in the lung have collapsed on each other and you see sort of a ground glass appearance. So the virus does that even before it starts, you know, everybody's heard the word cytokine storm and inflammation and the virus can cause a profound inflammation, but first it causes surfactant failure and collapse of the air sacs. Well, what does that have to do with Sami Saeed? It turns out that, uh, that VIP also has its own personal receptor on the surface of that type 2 cell. It doesn't bind to the rest of the lung. It binds just to that cell that's being attacked by the virus. And when the cell sees it, it says, you come on inside also. So VIP enters the, that type 2 cell and it increases surfactant production, it actually triggers a gene inside the cell that makes the cell produce more surfactant. Uh, There are also some folks at the Oswaldo Cruz Institute in Rio de Janeiro who have uh, shown that uh, a VIP blocks the replication or at least lowers the replication of the COVID virus inside that cell and it decreases the inflammatory response that everybody talks about.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma, about their unlikely route to treating respiratory failure in COVID 19 patients.
4: So, VIP is kind of like a, a trifecta of actions where it increases surfactant production, blocks the ability of the virus to reproduce itself, blocks the inflammatory response. Now you know most of the drugs we know today are what they call small molecule drugs, where somebody put together a, 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 a synthetic, uh, you know, a man-made molecule and gave it to a person. Like you know, aspirin is is a small molecule drug. And if you went to the people who design small molecule drugs and and say, well, now design me one that can do these three things, it looked at you like you were crazy. Maybe maybe we could make three different molecules that could do it, but sure not one. If you were to try to do this with a small molecule drug, you'd never pull it off. And yet you know, nature, whether, whether you believe in an intelligent designer or whether you believe in 65 million years of evolution, uh, created this short piece of protein that does all those three things. And it turns out it does many more things in the body. In fact, at the end, we'll even get back to our depression story for you. And and that's really the way of, of these natural molecules, like insulin, people say, well, insulin lowers blood sugar. Well, sure, it lowers blood sugar, but it does 10 other things that people never talk about. These these very short proteins, these peptides, have multiple functions. And one of the interesting things about VIP is that it's been around in uh, in warm-blooded mammals for as long as they've been breathing air. The most primitive mammal we know has exactly the same sequence, exactly the same structure of VIP as a Stanford PhD. It's, it's one of the, usually in evolution, as animals get more advanced, some of the molecules that they use in their systems also advance because that's how evolution works. And yet this, this molecule is so highly conserved that uh, nature must have gotten it right 65 million years ago in the first place. It's kind of how we got out of the ocean, breathing water into the land, breathing air.
0: You opened these 70 file boxes from Essen, Germany, Dr. Saeed's work, last March, where, where this recording is less than a year ago. It's like 11 months ago. How did you get from the boxes to here? And where are you now?
4: Well, more importantly, how did this wind up in a warehouse in Essen, Germany?
0: I never even thought of that.
4: <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 you know, Sammy spent the first 30 years of his discovery understanding VIP and finally got to the point where he wanted to give it to people. And he thought he knew it was safe in people. He did all the work to prove it was safe in people. And finally, he was able to get enough of it to give to people because, you know, making a, a, a peptide like this synthetically is, is a big challenge. But finally, one of the companies was able to give him enough to treat people. And he did the first human trial in, in 2005. He treated eight patients with something called respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, acute respiratory distress. And that's something that kills 250,000 Americans every year. Those are the people who die in the intensive care unit because they had sepsis, most often bacterial sepsis, and uh, it's it's a lethal condition. So he and his brand new research fellow, George Yusuf, treated eight people with ARDS, and seven of them got better. Seven of them actually made it out of the ICU, and it was, it was pretty exciting. Uh, he intended to treat another 20 people, but he, at that point, was uh, about 75 years old and uh, retired and never got to finish that experiment. And then a, a big drug company took over the work and they decided that they would focus on chronic lung diseases because uh, it's hard to imagine how you can really be a big commercial success with a disease that's only treated for a couple of days in the intensive care unit. Because he showed that three doses of this drug made a big difference. Well, how do you make money on three doses of something? So they went off studying chronic diseases of the lung. And the thing we're lucky about is that they actually tested VIP as an inhaled product in four different species of animals. So we've got great safety data. Otherwise, we never would have pulled this off. Uh, And then they decided they didn't want to be in the respiratory disease business at all. They decided they'd only be a a central nervous system kind of drug company. And all of the work, seventy file boxes worth of work, went into a warehouse in, in Essen, Germany. Kind of like some of you your listeners remember the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's this you know giant warehouse and the you know, the ark gets put in a box uh, at the end. Well, that's where all of Sammy's work went, and it sat there until uh, you know Eve from Relief Therapeutics said, "Well, gee, maybe maybe this could be used in COVID." So that's that's kind of when where we got involved. And uh you know, I got a look at at some of the data. We still hadn't gotten the boxes out of the warehouse, but some of the data was on computers and I could get a look at it, and it, it looked really exciting. And the FDA had just started this coronavirus treatment acceleration program where the FDA said, We're gonna be different. This is a public health emergency, we're gonna be different. We're we're gonna let people take anything that is pretty well proven to be safe, that has a good basis for trying it, and you know, move it to people in an expeditious manner. So the FDA gave us a, a license to test this drug in people. They call it an IND or an Investigational New Drug License uh, in 48 hours. Now of course they had the precedent of Dr. Saeed's IND from Stony Brook University, so it wasn't like we were coming at them with something they didn't know anything about, although they did have a little bit of difficulty finding people who remembered it from 2005. Uh, but sure enough, they they gave us permission to move forward. And then our our next challenge was, well, how do we make it? Because nobody's made this drug to use in people since 2005. Uh, most of the manufacturers that, that make investigational product for clinical trials had already been grabbed by the government for vaccines and and for other COVID initiatives. Uh, But we went to the government and said, listen, you've got these this small network of what they call formulating pharmacies. They call them 503B, which, you know, it's government speak, but they call them formulating pharmacies that are licensed by the FDA to make stuff uh really for almost individual patients one at a time, uh, and there's less than a hundred that have passed your inspection where you know that they 're clean that they 're sterile that they 're safe. How about we use one of those and make this drug for people and the fDA agreed with us, and that 's how we were able to get this drug from what we say from concept to clinic, you know from file boxes to inpatients in 10 weeks, which, as far as we know, has never been done in the history of the pharmaceutical industry.
0: So this is March of last year till when was that?
4: Treated the first patient uh, May 15th.
0: That's a record, <laughs> especially out of nowhere. I love this. I love this. Put put everything away. Save everything. So even if you feel like a failure, later on, somebody could pick it up and run with it. <laughs>
4: sooner or later and and you know some of the miracles that happened along the way was uh you know as as some people know i'm I'm not really a a respiratory disease specialist in fact i'm a professor of ophthalmology and some of my friends down at the bascom palmer eye institute got excited about this story and rounded up their uh, dean of research who happened to be an infectious disease specialist and He became our first principal investigator, Jaiwara at University of Miami. And then out of the blue, you know, so once he was on board, we posted the study on clinicaltrials.gov because we had the FDA license. We had a principal investigator and a study site. So we posted this on clinicaltrials.gov. And all of a sudden we get a phone call saying, well, my name is, is George Youssef and I was Sammy Saeed's research fellow.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear about a technology for the early detection of lymphedema in breast cancer survivors, and it's available nationwide. Stay with us. We'll be right back. back. We're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma, about their sudden pivot into working on a treatment for COVID, which came from research some 20 years old, abandoned, and now being worked on again.
4: So we posted this on clinicaltrials.gov, and all of a sudden we get a phone call saying, well, my name is, is George Youssef, and I was Sammy Saeed's research fellow. I've been waiting for somebody to take VIP back into the clinic and try it on COVID. Can, can we work together? And Dr. Yusuf is now our, our principal investigator at Houston Methodist Hospital. So it, it was, you know, almost like, you know, one of these, you know, Ronald Reagan movies, you know, let's paint up the barn and, and you know, <laughs> it, it just all came together.
0: Now, as I understand it, you're working on two forms of this drug, Um, an infused drug for the sickest patients in ICU and an inhaled version for patients not yet in respiratory failure. Let's start with the sickest patients with the infused drug. Uh, Let's start there.
4: So that's what Sammy Saeed did in 2005. He tried this drug in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome as an infused drug and saw that you know eight out of eight patients showed better oxygen in their blood and seven out of eight patients actually survived and left the intensive care unit. So we had that as precedent. So what we did with the infused formulation is we stood on Dr. Saeed's shoulders. We took exactly his dosage, his preparation that he used for ARDS, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome related to bacterial infection and tried it in patients with COVID. And we did it both in open label studies. That means you know who got drug and you're comparing them to people who are getting the standard of care. And we've just finished what's called a randomized controlled trial, which means that We don't know who's getting drug and who's getting placebo. Placebo is just a fancy word for an infusion of salt water. Uh, But we're tracking everybody the same. And everybody in the study is getting all of the standard medications. They're getting steroids. They're getting remdesivir. They're getting anticoagulant drugs. They're getting all the things people have heard about in COVID. And then the objective is to see whether the infused drug is better than the placebo in terms of people recovering. And we're just at the crux of, uh, just at the the point of releasing that data to the public for the first time. In fact, just earlier uh, this week, we announced that we'd seen a, a substantial decrease in the number of hospital days in the people who got the drug compared to the people who got placebo. And we're still analyzing the data on showing that they actually recovered from the disease more quickly. We hope that we'll prove that, but we can't say that we've proven it yet because we haven't finished the analysis. But early
0: days look good.
4: Well, we we know we get people out of the hospital sooner. So it's likely that uh, something biological is happening, that they're getting better because probably the hospitals didn't just choose to send the people who got drug home while they're still sick.
0: Now, tell me about the inhaled drug.
4: Now, we knew that this drug has a very important role if you inhale it, and uh, I'll give you a a clip that Dr. Janet Woodcock, the new FDA commissioner, just uh, did in, in an interview yesterday where she talks about how important it is to be looking at inhaled drugs for treating COVID because the the disease is attacking the lining of the lung. And the way to treat the lining of the lung is from the air side of the lung, not from the blood side. Anybody who has asthma knows that. Anybody who has asthma knows that the drugs that work for inflammation on the the air side of the lung and the air sacs of the lung uh, wants to be treated with an inhaled drug. The problem is the lining of the lung is incredibly delicate and uh, FDA is incredibly vigilant about making sure that anything that's going to be used in inhaled form has very, very rigorous safety testing. So, you know, we, we were lucky about these 70 file boxes in Essen, Germany, but it still took a while to get our hands on the contents get those contents uploaded to the FDA and let the FDA pulmonary, which is a fancy word for lung disease reviewers, really go through all of the toxicity studies. In other words, can this drug be damaging to the lung? Uh, and not only, you know, they looked in four different species of animals to make sure that it's safe for the lung. So the inhaled use study is coming behind the, uh, the intravenous study.
0: So I assume it's going to be a while before we find out if the inhaled version is helpful.
4: Well, it, it certainly took us a year to get from the file boxes to where we are today. We hope that it's going to take us much less time to take the next step. And that's because we've attracted some pretty exciting partners along the way. First of all, we're starting our own inhaled trial. But uh, we've also announced that uh, the government's iSpy program, that's their name, so uh, the government's iSpy program, which is able to rapidly test drugs at hospitals all across the country, has adopted our inhaled drug as one of the drugs that they're testing against critical COVID-19. So uh, we're, you know, we've got some some powerful friends showing up to the party. And, uh, you know, I almost fell over when I listened to Dr. Woodcock, uh, on the air yesterday, you know, talking about how important she viewed this whole inhaled approach to, to treating COVID for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just plain difficult to do a 12 hour, you know, IV infusion where you've got a, a tube in, in the patient's arm, and you're infusing it over 12 hours, and you've got to do these three, three days in a row. Uh, but second of all, there, there are some side effects from giving this drug uh, by IV. It causes some diarrhea, which we told people about in our press release, whereas uh, an inhaled drug, a nebulized drug, first of all, it's easier to give in the hospital, uh, and second of all, you can give it at home. So you know we're we're pretty excited about this next step, especially if this potentially has the p- potential to get people home from the hospital without winding up in the ICU, and even to get people who are home able to stay home and not wind up having to go to the hospital. The other place it's going is uh, you're reading more and more about long haulers people who have this post-COVID syndrome where they're, they're coughing, they're short of breath for months. In fact, the pand- you know, there are people who got COVID early in the pandemic who still have lung symptoms. And we're hoping that the inhaled form of this drug might help those people. So where's NeuroRx?
0: You were working on suicidal depression. What are you going to do post-COVID? What's the idea going forward?
4: Well, first of all, we, we owe it to our patients, to our shareholders, to ourselves to finish the drug for suicidal depression because the patients that we're targeting are patients with suicidal bipolar depression. They're, they're an orphan group of patients. Nobody's ever developed a drug for them. In fact, they've been excluded from the clinical trials of every known antidepressant because they're the ones who actually kill themselves. And if you're a if you're a big drug company and you're developing an antidepressant drug because you know that there are 30 million people in the United States who need your drug and they're going to take it for a lifetime and it's an automatic 4 billion dollar franchise, the last thing you want is suicidal people in your clinical trials. All you're going to get is trouble. Well, you know, we're we're going after those people. We're going after the the ones you know everybody knows the the Anthony Bourdain's of the world, the Kate Spades of the world the the horrible truth is that if you know, you know if you know two people with bipolar depression, one of them's going to attempt suicide, and if you know five people with bipolar depression, one of them's going to succeed, and the the pathway that this drug uh, uses is a different pathway from all of the approved antidepressants uh, that have come before it. There are a couple of drugs using this pathway now. they call the NMDA pathway, big word. but uh, So, first of all, we, we have to get back to that because uh, it's too important not to. The FDA gave us breakthrough therapy status for the drug. They, they've done everything they can to ease our path to proving that the drug might work. Uh, and... It also is likely to work in PTSD, and COVID has caused a trauma to the nation and the world that we're only beginning to fathom. The suicide rate has doubled since the pandemic began. People have not been able to get mental health care, and the the stresses induced by this pandemic are, are just horrific uh, so the, the need for drugs that can really attack these, these lethal uh, forms of depression uh, is greater than it ever was. Now, ironically, just last week, somebody published a paper showing that people with severe depression have lower levels of VIP in their brain than people who don't. So I told you that VIP does you know, all kinds of things in the body. We're only beginning to find out what it does.
0: We've been talking about this drug that you've developed here, but we've never said during this interview the name of the drug. Let's tell people the name.
4: So usually when a, a big drug company brings out a drug, they, they save the name until last. But in this case, we decided to tell everybody the name right up front. We're naming the drug Zy Sami in honor of Sami Saeed, and the incredible scientific legacy that made this drug possible.
0: Well, Dr. Javitt, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back and see us again.
4: It would be my pleasure, Maura.
0: Dr. Jonathan Javitt is the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. For updates on their work in the treatment of COVID-19 respiratory failure, as well as their efforts to treat suicidal depression, more information is available on the web at NeuroRxPharma.com. In the three years following breast cancer treatment, a serious condition known as lymphedema can present itself. Once visibly detected, which is the usual case, The condition is lifelong, but with early detection, there can be early intervention. Rick Carrion is the CEO of Impedimed. Hey, Rick, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much, Mario. Great to be here.
0: Now, let's start with some basic facts about the human body. We have lymph nodes. That's L-Y-M-P-H, lymph nodes. In fact, we have lymph nodes all over our bodies. What do they do?
3: Well, lymph nodes are used by the immune and circulatory system to really filter out impurities, bacteria, and so forth. And so they're continually, uh, lymphatic fluid is continually flowing through the body, and it's cleaning all of these, and it's an important part of uh, the health of the human body.
0: Well, we talked earlier, um, and when you were considering taking on this position of CEO at Impedimed. Impedimed sent you to sit in the reception area of a medical office where women who are undergoing treatment for breast cancer were coming in and out. Tell us about that experience.
3: It was very unique. I did not know, as most people don't know, about lymphedema. And so I went to this breast center for cancer treatment, and I sat there in the waiting room and noticed that these women were wearing sleeves, just skin colored looking compression sleeves or stockings on their legs. And started to realize there was a large number in this center who were experiencing lymphedema. Up to that point, I subconsciously had noticed women wearing skin-colored garments before, but I had no idea what they were for.
0: This lymphedema, what has it got to do with breast
3: cancer? Well, typically, when you undergo surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, or a combination of those in your cancer treatment, you're doing damage to the lymphatic systems. There's a number of breast cancer surgeries that actually remove lymph nodes. And so you've got a compromised lymphatic flow, if you will, after your treatment. And so when it's damaged, what happens is the fluid can start to back up and become blocked. And so you see a swelling of the limbs. And typically for breast cancer, it's the arms, one or both arms, depending on the extent of their treatment.
0: And what happens when all that fluid, that lymphatic fluid, backs up? How do we get to the sleeves?
3: Yes. So the challenge that these patients have is by the time they notice it, by the time they feel it, or it can be measured with what people are using typically today, it becomes too late. The, The channels of the lymphatics are blocked, and so the fluid starts to build up. And once it starts to build up, it starts to turn fatty and fibrotic, and that's where you see these large swollen arms. And the only way to treat that is through constant treatment for probably the rest of these poor patients' lives. And it can be even as far as going with surgical intervention at some points if it gets to be so bad. Now, that's why you start to see these patients start to wear these sleeves. It's trying to control or trying to squeeze out the excess fluid or hold the fluid in check so that any fluid that's traveling through the system can continue to flow. But again, the lymphatics are damaged probably beyond repair at that point.
0: But this condition doesn't come on right away post-surgery, right?
3: That's correct. Typically, 90% of lymphedema, if it's going to occur, will occur within the first three years. So think about this. You have surgery. You may do some damage to the lymphatics. Several months later, you may be going through uh, chemotherapy or radiation or a combination. So you continually do more and more damage to the lymphatic. So again, it could take up to three years for this to present itself.
0: What percentage of women suffer from this? And does it matter which treatment they have?
3: Well, it, it matters on the treatment. So the less invasive treatment and the earlier you catch cancer, the less invasive that treatment probably will be. And that typically will have lower rates, but on average... One in three cancer survivors will develop lymphedema in their lifetime. So today, there's almost 16 million cancer survivors in the U.S. Close to 6 million of those are suffering with persistent, chronic, lifelong lymphedema. So let me put that in perspective. Here's some interesting facts Here is that Lymphedema today is more prevalent than ulcerative colitis, Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, and Lou Gehrig's disease combined. In fact, it's greater than glaucoma and it's equal to the number of patients suffering from Alzheimer's. It is an unchecked issue with these poor patients. I mean, it's a very large problem that nobody's really talking about. People want to do more than survive, they want to thrive after their cancer treatment, and this is an opportunity for them to tackle this major issue that comes with this cancer treatment that, that people are very scared about. In fact, in survey after survey, more what's really heartbreaking here is it is the most feared consequence of cancer survivorship by women. Think about that. They don't understand what lymphedema is going into surgery, but afterwards it becomes the most feared after reoccurrence of their cancer.
0: Now let's turn to the technology. This is a technology which was originally developed and tested some 20 years ago. What is this SOZO technology?
3: The technology was originally developed for scientific research to find an easy way to measure fluid. And the way it's done today is we pass 256 frequencies which are unperceptible to the human body. And we measure how fast and slow those frequencies travel. And with that, we're able to get a very detailed makeup of fluid, fat, muscle, and bone. And so for cancer patients, what we do is we pass those frequencies. So for it's a breast cancer patient from arm to arm, and we're able to measure the fluid. And as that fluid starts to build, we're able to give the information to the doctors who are able to look at that information and determine when that patient is starting to see a backup of their lymphatics. We catch it at such an early stage that if caught early, that patient wears a simple compression sleeve for up to four weeks, 12 hours a day. And all of the clinical data we have now will show that we can reduce or eliminate lymphedema 81 to 95 percent of the time
0: so catch it early but it's the same sleeve
3: it's the exact same sleeve you want to catch it early you want to put the sleeve on what the sleeve does it compresses the fluid allows uh, allows the fluid to, to start to flow again and then that patient can return to a normal lifestyle now that means they're still at high risk. We don't cure lymphedema, but we catch it at such an early stage, it doesn't allow the channels to be blocked or that fiber to build up, as we talked about earlier. It's, it's really remarkable. Like anything in medicine, you catch it early, you treat it effectively, you have much better outcomes.
0: Now, I saw a picture of this, and you stand on it in your bare feet and you hold on to the handles. Is that
3: That's correct?
0: You got to take your shoes off.
3: You got to take your shoes off. And and the reason we do that is we're passing these frequencies and getting the information that allows that physician to make that determination of of the fluid imbalance throughout the body. But more importantly, if the patient has undergone gynecological or prostate cancer and they have lymph nodes removed out of their groin area, we need to tell which leg may be at high risk and which one may develop lymphedema or which one is developing lymphedema. So by standing on this device, we're able to do all of those sweeps at a single moment in time and get a baseline and use those measurements for the rest of their cancer treatment, which typically lasts several years.
0: Now, some women, unfortunately, have to have both breasts removed. You can't really compare one side to the other, can you?
3: Great question. And so what we do, instead of using the unaffected limb for somebody who has only undergone a removal of limb nodes on one side of their body, we use, the, we use their legs. So if I've had a double mastectomy, I've had uh, lymph nodes removed from both sides, chemotherapy, radiation, we use one of their legs as the baseline. So we, we know the ratio of fluid in their arms to their leg. We know what it's at a normal state because we've done that test pre-surgical, and then every test throughout, every test done afterwards, our algorithms already the device automatically detects it and starts looking for a fluid imbalance of that ratio between the arms and the legs, and it's very, very effective. Like I said, our studies show um, a, a high, high success rate with reducing lymphedema.
0: How much fluid is too much fluid?
3: Well, we detect down to two and a half tablespoons, so very little fluid. You start to get above that, then, then you start to run into trouble at that point. So we want to detect it at the lowest level. So we detect that small fluid shift. Now, imagine this, two and a half tablespoons spread out through an entire arm. You can't measure it with a tape measure. You can't scan it with an optical scanner and look for differences, and that patient's not going to feel it. But it's at such a low level that it really hasn't done any damage to that point to the lymphatics.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, studies, uh, biomedical devices have to be cleared. In every country here in the United States, that would be the FDA. Um, And many times these require extensive clinical trials. Uh, What's been done there with this device?
3: Our device has been cleared by the FDA for lymphedema, both bilateral and unilateral and a number of other uh, a number of other clearances and the studies we have are quite extensive understand this we started 20 years ago as we said earlier as a scientific device today we have more than 500 peer-reviewed journal articles on our technology on lymphedema alone we have more than 150 so we've used that data with the food and drug administration to get a clearance for lymphedema for heart failure for hydration, and so forth. So we've got a number of clearances. In Europe, we have even more extensive clearances. But again, the clinical studies that we have are quite extensive. I would challenge you that any other company of our size, a startup basically in the medical device world, would would not have 500 peer-reviewed journal articles.
0: Now, you've also talked about the fact that Zozo could measure fat differentials and muscle differentials. What do we use that for?
3: We're using... Sozo today, in a number of different fields that are that are critically important because if you think about it for a moment, if I'm undergoing cancer treatment, I'm probably losing fat, muscle, and bone, but there's no easy way to tell today with our device and with the studies we're currently undertaking, we believe we're going to be able to provide clinicians with the with them the makeup of the human body as they go through their cancer treatment. We're the first device cleared by the FDA for a disease called protein calorie malnutrition, which affects cancer survivors, heart failure, and kidney failure patients. That's one of the areas. Now, the other area we have is, if you think about it for a moment, lymphedema is all about fluid. Heart failure, fluid overload, it's all about excess fluid, and the heart having to work harder. And if you look at kidney failure, it's all about patients who have lost their kidney functions and they have to go in for dialysis. It's all about fluid. So we we have a clearance in the United States today for lymphedema, for heart failure, and we're currently working with the FDA on kidney failure.
0: Well, I know from my notes that at least Medicare has approved this treatment. Where would one find such devices in the United States?
3: Well, we have hundreds of devices already installed at major cancer centers throughout the United States. And so for, if a patient is interested in, in looking to find out where they can get a, a reading off of one of our devices, they can go to our website, com, and they can go to the device locator, put in their information, and it will show them where the nearest facility is that has a device. Or they can talk to their clinician about it, and we can certainly... I helped them acquire a device for their clinic.
0: Now, let me get this straight. No matter whether you're checking uh, fluids, you're checking muscles, you're checking fat, you just stand on the device, bare feet, hold two handles with your hand for 30 seconds, and you feel nothing. And that...
3: You feel absolutely... That's exactly right, Mara. You put your hands and feet on it. It takes you longer to take off your shoes and socks than actually to do the test itself.
0: Well, could you at least, like, make noises so we think you're doing something? <laughs> As opposed to some kind of hocus-pocus, well, oh, honest, here's the answer. <laughs> <You know?
3: laughs> well, that, that, that's a very good point. We actually had to put a countdown timer because people weren't sure it was doing anything. So on, when they stand on the device, it counts down from five, it tells them a test is being taken, and it provides the information. So you're absolutely right. People were wondering, is this really doing anything?
0: <laughs> well, it sure <laughs> is, is the answer. Thank you so much for joining me, Rick. And I hope you'll come back and let us know how these studies turn out.
3: Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it.
0: Rick Carrion is the CEO of Impedimed, based in Australia and California. More information is available at Impedimed.com. That's I-M-P-E-D-I-M-E-D, Impedimed.com. For Technation and Biotechnation, I'm Moira Gunn.